This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I'm creating a tribe of tech entrepreneurs that are on a mission to do something big and meaningful. I invite you to join the tribe as well, especially if you want to create change that matters and put your software business on momentum that you're proud of. The goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Tim Panagos, co-founder and chief technology officer at Microshare. When I was leaving Accenture, what I was beginning to see were that there were patterns in how these very large projects, you know, 50 million, 100 million dollar a year projects that were being executed, were combining technologies that I felt were ripe to be harvested and democratized. And so being a systems thinker, I began to kind of visualize how we could take and oil these large projects down and create building blocks that would allow more people to take advantage of them people who didn't have the budget or the risk profile necessary to launch a $50 million Accenture project to apply these things. How would we kind of redesign and reconceive of these technologies to, to make it more broadly applicable? This is Tim. He's a technology officer with over 20 years of experience in enterprise software. He's a change agent and a vision setter who's thrilled by building and sees the wisdom in maintaining. He believes that technology is a weapon for strategic competitive advantage, and he is most productive when he can team up with a business partner who shares his big ideas. He was most recently Chief Architect at Accenture's Global Business Process Management Practice, leading architecture innovation. Prior to that, Tim was a CTO at Knowledge Rules, a global consulting startup and held multiple engineering leadership roles at Pegasystems. He holds a master's in management of technology from MIT and studied computer science at the University of New Hampshire. In 2013, he co-founded Microshare, where today he's in charge of strategic product vision and the implementation of it. Microshare is all about squeezing more value from more data. And the focus has been on harnessing and sharing previously hidden insights on client operations. And this unveils vast cost savings opportunities and delivers new metrics on occupant wellness building performance and sustainability. But beyond that, also enables the business to deliver novel business models that will create new industries and disrupt existing. This inspired me. And hence I invited Tim to my podcast. We explore how businesses are challenged to make the right and best decisions on how to deploy the space that they own or occupy. And how COVID has recently made the challenge even worse. 
we also address what opportunities we have in taking employee wellness and productivity to the next level when we bring in meaningful and live data from sensors into the picture. Beyond that, we talk about what it takes to build a software business that creates solutions that not only have an edge, but also keeps it. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, how to create solutions to aid decision-making in areas where there's a lot of human bias, emotional tension, and invisible behavior. Secondly, how removing friction in the adoption and decision-making slash buying process of enterprise software solutions can help to drive momentum. Thirdly, how data privacy can become your key differentiator if you think about it differently. And fourthly, how you can grow faster and bigger by focusing with dedication on smaller, less educated and narrower defined markets. Well, hi, Timothy. Thank you for making the time today and be a guest on my podcast. Tom, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I mean, we will pay attention to the company that you co-founded back eight years ago, a company called, today is called MicroShare. It was, it was called a little different back then. Before we start, you've listened to a couple of my podcasts. You know, I think you know the drill. If you had to describe yourself in two or three words, what characterizes you as a person or entrepreneur? I think my primary value add is that I'm a system thinker. My particular intellectual value, I think, is around seeing how things fit together and being able to orchestrate well. And I've kind of built a career around that single trick. I found that it is a fairly compelling trick in a lot of cases, but being able to see opportunities and assembling small parts to create a larger whole really has served me pretty well in my career. And I continue to exploit that. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I got some of that as well. One thing, and also for people on the podcast listening, that you should try out is something called the Game Changer Index, mm. GC Index. Just check it out on the internet. I've done it as well. It's eye-opening in terms of how it reveals where you are adding most value to the company that you work for or company you work with. So that is interesting. Think, system thinker, connecting the dots, see how things fit together and then orchestrate that. Mm. I like that. The company that you are, that's now called MicroShare, started eight years ago. Tell me a little bit about it. What was the big idea behind starting the company? Sure. So I think it feeds into the system thinking. The origin really comes from a stint that myself and my co-founders had at Accenture based on a career in deploying large-scale artificial intelligence projects, largely for very large corporations, right? So banking and, and insurance were kind of core competencies. And when, we, when I was leaving Accenture, what I was beginning to see were that there were patterns in how these very large projects, you know, $50 million, $100 million a year projects that were being executed, were combining technologies that I felt were ripe to be harvested and democratized. And so being a systems thinker, I began to kind of visualize how we could take and boil these large projects down and create building blocks that would allow more people to take advantage of them. People who didn't have the budget or the risk profile necessary to launch a $50 million Accenture project to apply these things. How would we kind of redesign and reconceive of these technologies to, to make it more broadly applicable? So that was really, I'm not sure if it's a big idea, you know, it's not a sort of 
direct thesis about something or I had a eureka moment. It's more of a, an observation that the industry was ready for the move yep. beyond to drive down market. Yeah. So what I see on your website, MicroShare is about, I would say, facility management and using IoT, edge right. devices to do smart things inside right. office buildings and so on. So how did that idea came about? Is, or is it one of the use cases? Well, it, it really is one of the use cases. And, you know, the story of our startup is really one of typical pivots from the initial founding to where we are today. Uh-huh. And I will say, you know, I will admit that, you know, the lean startup notions are very much in vogue and finding product market fit before you move is considered to rigor. And, you know, I guess at the end of the day, we were completely wrong to start with about what the product market fit was. And so we took some time exploring the space. One might say wandering if you were looking at it from the outside, but eventually we did find some areas where we could bring that sort of systems thinking and integrated technologies to bear. And we've begun really to make some hay out of that successfully. Mm-hmm. But it's really a story of, of wandering, looking for the right area. And there's a lot to say about that. <laughs> but yeah, what, what interested me is like, what did you see that made you like say, hey, this is, this is such a big problem. It's crying for a solution or it's crying yeah. for us to come in and democratize what's going on there? What was broken? So, you know, we really started with a novel data management approach. The problem that was really intriguing me was how do people manage data at scale in a way that allows it to be fed into the best artificial intelligence tools that are available in the market? Because it seemed to me that data quality and the attendant problem of managing privacy were being sort of underappreciated in how people were assembling these tools and technologies where we had the sort of development of cloud development of artificial intelligence. And specifically in this case, I mean, machine learning tools and techniques were coming together with a sophistication around edge computing, mostly driven by mobile computing, right? So mobile phones and cellular phones, but was also being, you know, distributed out into the sensor space, the device space, the, what we, became called IoT. And it was looking at the intersection of these things that we kind of noticed that people were really struggling with data quality. You know, I'm I'm sure you're familiar, it's not a new observation, but you know, machine learning is only as good as the data you can feed it. And what we were seeing was, you know, projects were collecting data, but a massive amount of the money, a massive amount of the time and intellectual effort was going into data cleansing. And often only to find that after the data was cleansed, there was a questionable rights to use the data in the ways that the companies were looking to do it. And obviously now privacy debates are very common, right? They're out in the open and they're, if anything, gaining steam. Ten years ago, I think that was just beginning to become clear that there were going to be some challenges to what kind of data people really had rights to and how the public would react to it. So that's really what we started with, that date, that novel data management. And then we spent some time kind of really looking for the ideal place to apply that. And that ended up being? Well, well, you know, dealing with enterprise, one knows that, you know, there are some data jewels in the enterprises, right? We're talking about things like banking details and CRM 
And the reality of those kind of data, although you might have a technology that applies to them, finding an IT person in a bank, say, who wants to take a risk in moving the data out of the Oracle database that it's been in for two decades and doing something different with it is a very hard sell. And so what we realized along the way was, you know, IoT data is new to organizations and doesn't already have a dominant paradigm for management, for storage, for management. So you're not trying to convince somebody that they should do something different with a stable environment. You're really just saying, hey, you don't already know how to handle this data. Let me give you a way of thinking about it that's novel from the start. Much easier to inject the innovation when there is no sort of incumbent model for the internal organization to think about it. So we kind of stumbled onto IoT from that perspective because it's net new data and people didn't really know how to think about it. It's different than the other kind of transactional data that people deal with. And so we began to circle around that. And as we kind of began to get experience in the IoT space, there's been a lot of science projects in the industry that have kind of lived through the boom and bust of the IoT buzzword that's already come and gone. But what we saw was real opportunity in the management of humans relating to space, that at the end of the day, space is one of those resources that is really hard to replicate, right? We're not growing more square footage in the world at the end of the day. And and so making best use of those scarce resources in service of human well-being is, you know, if you take that as a mission writ large, it's actually quite compelling. Um, there's a lot that can be done with that. So you created a solution whereby you can actually get the insights from the sensors about which room are being used, how to best optimize that. So actually companies can maybe do with smaller offices. Tom, that's, that's I mean, exactly, I, you know, apropos of the theme, I think, of your podcast. It's really about recognizing when facilities have grown beyond the ability for a human to build an accurate intuition about it your apartment, your house, maybe even your office building, if you're completely aware of it by living in it, by working in it, by taking responsibility for it, then you build up an understanding, I think, and just intuitively as a human about how it's being used, how to optimize it. But if you scale that problem and you begin to say, it's not 2,000 square feet I'm worried about, it's 2 million square feet. And it's not one location, it's 20 locations. Yeah. Or it's a organization that has a lot of moving parts. Take a hospital or an airport where the operations within the space complicate the details of the space, frankly, yeah. just beyond where humans have a natural ability to comprehend and, and make good decisions. And so what we have found is by augmenting the human intuition and skills for managing spaces with accurate data, you know, well-scrubbed, well-managed, and privacy-assured data, feeding that into, you know, visualization tools and, and machine learning, we can support what humans are doing in terms of space optimization and management in a way that is really compelling, particularly for these large-scale facilities where people just, the smartest person is just not smart enough to balance those very complex environments, large environments. True, true. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I know, for example, when the previous company I used to work for, even for, was delisted, became part of private equity. There was a whole project in order to see yeah. 
what is the real estate that we really need for this company? Yeah. First of all, of course, to start cutting costs. But if you, if you look at this, at, at the solution that you provide, what is the opportunity if companies are going to use this? What is the before and after for your customers? Yeah, so there's a fairly varied diet of what our various customers are looking to, to achieve. At the risk of dating our podcast here, we live in a current COVID crisis period. So that has definitely thrown an interesting overlay. But I will try to say generically that we have organizations, as you said, who are looking to do space optimization, yeah. who have you know very large balance sheet items because they're carrying a lot of real estate or very large operational expenses because they're leasing a lot of space. It's a very expensive proposition for organizations. And it's very hard to get human intelligence about whether the space... Yeah, yeah that you have is necessary. And it's on the downside and the upside. Do you have enough space to optimize performance or do you have too much space? Are you using the space you have properly or could it be reconfigured? And if you ask human managers, of course they'll always tell you they need more people and they need more space. And so it's very hard to get an organization to tell you, you know what, actually you can take half my space because my staff are working from home, so I don't need it. That's just not the way organizational behavior works. So being able to give people accurate information about how space is used gives the opportunity to optimize in a bunch of different realms, right? From what kind of space do people need? Do they need desk space? Do they need conference space? Do they want closed rooms? Do they want open rooms? What's optimal yeah. for that? What's um, the trend? Yeah. What's the trend, right? And it's different for different organizations based on location, based on the type of work that's going on. How you optimize a factory floor is very different than how you optimize you know, office space for knowledge workers. But what's core to both of those is you really need accurate data about how people are moving through the space, how they utilize assets in the space that can begin to give you that working model to begin to make decisions on. So that I think is, you know, the biggest ROI, as you said, is do I have the right amount of space? Can I divest? Should I acquire? And if I do acquire, how do I guarantee that I'm acquiring the right space? Because I believe and we believe that ultimately it's managing the efficiency balanced against human comfort. Because in many cases, safety, well-being, comfort contribute to organizational efficiency. And so, you know, if you go out and just cut and saying, I'm just going to guess we have 75% more space than we need, and you just cut, well, the humans will adapt. But did you cut the right stuff? Did you cut too deep? Did you not cut enough? What did you do to organizational productivity? You might only know in five years how it came out in hindsight. You really have to kind of balance those two things. And now in the age of COVID, it really does change the way people think about space utilization with, you know, increasing work from home, desire to be in pods working with people that you work closely with, but perhaps not exposed to a larger population. We're seeing people saying, you know, this corporate campus or this massive factory that we currently pay for. It doesn't fit the well-being factor in these cases, even if it is an optimization for efficiency, which I think people are now getting their eyes open about. Indeed, do people need to be face-to-face to be truly efficient or, yeah. you know, is remote work and work from home, at least in the knowledge areas, a true opportunity? Yeah. So we see people looking to rebalance. And I think the best companies in the world are also recognizing that Work-life balance is important. And, you know, particularly with COVID, being aware of human well-being can become a real advantage for attracting and retaining talent because yeah. increasingly 
the best people in the world, the most capable people in the world are going to look for employers that have their eyes out for them. Yeah, I mean, you remind me of an interview I did with Paul Zak, who is the chief immersion officer at Immersion. Their solution is all about sensing how humans feel yeah. with, with wearables. So, I mean, I'm almost like envisioning that you combine this and see That's right. where people that feel most productive in a building based right. on not what they say, but actually how they feel and, and right. put it together. I think that's exactly right. You know, at the end of the day, any data scientist, I think, will tell you that if the data is high quality, the more elements to the data that you can provide yeah. for the analytics, the more insights you're likely to squeeze out. So indeed, what we've built is a platform that allows you to really quickly deploy a certain set of sensors that we believe are your baby steps towards beginning to understand your environment. And these are things that optimize for space and things like smart cleaning, which is very compelling right now. People are asked to clean more frequently, more visibly. They're not giving more people resources to do the cleaning. So cleaning services and facilities has really been put under a lot of strain. So how do I clean optimally is a big question that has yeah. real ROI and real impact on comfort. So these kind of pieces of information we get people started with, but the goal ultimately is integrate as many different dimensions of measurement as are constructive for your analytic team to be able to really look at these things because measuring efficiency on both dimensions, the human dimension and the space dimension, yeah. it's the combination of those two things that add to optimization. So absolutely, anything that gives us a sense truly of accurate well-being and trying to be close to how people are optimized for efficiency, I think that that's the sweet spot. And we want to be the platform that allows you to integrate all of that at the end of the day. Starting easy, start without science experiments. We kind of have guaranteed with our business model, it's kind of sensing as a service. So for that first part of it, it's easy. There's no decisions to make. It's easy to pay for. It's an operational expense. But as you grow, we want to then allow you to integrate these more innovative aspects directly into the platform as well so that we ensure that the data quality is high and you can spend your data science money really analyzing data and not worrying about scrubbing data and you know referencing data. And in general, we call this digital twinning in a lot of, this is probably the, the that term. buzzword wave. Yeah. Yes, you've heard it, I'm sure you know, physically modeling in a digital space, right? Fascinating. Yeah, I mean, now that you bring up all these scenarios, it's also seeing how quickly things can change because yeah. of something happening. And I mean, COVID is a, is a good example of that. Because I was only thinking about less use of office space, but COVID also brought more cleaning. And then indeed, where do you clean in a way that exactly. sometimes you don't have to clean all the places, but like that desk, that desk, and that floor. And That's right. <laughs> and, and balancing it with human feedback is really important. So we have yeah. some devices that are all about human feedback because today, particularly, you know, anxiety runs high and it, and it really should. And so sometimes it's important to clean where the system recommends it. It's also important to clean where your staff think it's necessary and to balance those two things because you need to be visible to, you know, sort of quell the anxiety, but you also need to be effective. So you might clean elevator buttons when you don't really need to and recognize that actually it's the copy machine that is the place where people really are congregating and need cleaning. You got to do both, right? You need to be visible and effective at the cleaning. And that's very different than the way people normally optimize, which is, you know, I come at night and I just go around and I, sure. I clean every floor in a circle and then I'm done. 
but that's very different cleaning staff are being asked to, to behave very differently. And it's really becoming a challenge to manage all that. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's an easy ROI in a lot of cases just to help people be effective at doing it. And it's gratifying yeah, yeah. to be able to see how that, how that can help get people back to work safely. Yeah. So it's far beyond efficiency. It's, it's actually about productivity and yeah, an impact that you, that you have. Indeed. So what I'm always interested in is the journey where you've been building this solution and you've, you've provided already a good sense of detail about how this all started and how you were wondering in order to, to get to the ideal use case. Mm. I wrote a book called The Remarkable Effect. And what I'm always looking for is these, these scenarios. Have you been thinking up front when you were designing the platform to do it in a way that it created defensible differentiation, something that yeah, sets you apart? And if so, what was it? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. You know, one of the things I've observed about, you know, the startup media space particularly is it's, it's easy for successful startups to remake history and describe it as, hey, we knew this from the beginning, that this was the a core idea. And I'm somewhat skeptical about it. My own experience, and maybe it's just because I'm not that smart at the end of the day, is that you have to start with a thesis, but entrepreneurship is about willingness to take a risk and a willingness to be wrong and then figure out in the depths of potential depression during your wrong- wrongness how you navigate your way out. So the, the journey as an entrepreneur, I think, is very rocky personally and emotionally. I think what has really differentiated us is this orientation to privacy and recognizing that any data we collect ultimately must be thought of as having multiple owners. Let me make a small interruption here. Tim just made an excellent remark about an essential choice that he made early in the design of their solution. The idea that data has multiple owners. This decision appeared to give them defensible differentiation from the very start. It is this ability to connect the dots and draw critical conclusions that form the foundation for creating new value possibilities. That's a trait remarkable software businesses master. Not only does it give them an advantage that cannot easily be copied, but also an opportunity to create solutions with exponentially better value because the problem can be attacked with a different perspective. You can master these traits as well. I have two options for you to start. First, read or listen to my book, The Remarkable Effect. You can find that on Amazon.com. Secondly, get into action right away and surround yourself by a group of like-minded people, tech founders and CEOs that will help you to remove your blind spots, explore new paths and sharpen your thinking. How? Just visit valueinspiration.com. Back to the interview. And to make that concrete, if you think about a smart building deployment where the building owner pays to have some sensors stuck up on walls and they are collecting data. In the normal world, you would think of, well, the owner of the sensor is also the owner of the data because there's a single database that it's going to acquire to. And we might not like it, but the tenants, the employees, the customers, the you know random people that wander through the building really don't have exposure to the data that's being collected while they're in its presence. And increasingly, that's been exposed mostly in the online behaviors world as being insufficient in our modern world because people are becoming aware just how powerful the data is, how valuable the data is, and perhaps how creepy the data is, you know, what people are able to know about you. I think this is even more true in the physical space than it is on the online space, although I think people are less aware of 
what IoT is measuring about their lives. And so I would be lying to say that from the start, we knew this was the differentiator. It actually was something that we put into the platform. And it was just kind of a matter of course that I put it in because I really believed that that was going to be important, but maybe not that important. And as we went out to early customers, people were saying, oh yeah, okay, I see what you're doing with analytics and I see what you're doing with building apps and stuff. And that's interesting, but hey, tell me what you're doing with the data. And people kept returning to that fundamental question. And, you know, at some point it dawned on us, well, geez, maybe we should stop talking about apps, stop talking about analytics, stop talking about cloud and all these other important pieces of the equation. People really want to talk about this thing. What is the problem? How, what do we think about it that's different? And, you know, going back to first principles and saying, look, okay, one of the key problems in the world is that people will begin to assert some sovereignty over the data that is about them. And how do we get ahead of that? How do you rethink this idea of one sensor, one database, one owner? And we introduced this idea of multiple owners for every piece of data and that for every owner can express their own unique policy about what they think that data can be used for. And so there's a a rules engine piece of AI in the middle of our, our technology that allows people to express these rules and executes these rules in real time so that people who are pulling the data to do a certain kind of analytic task or reveal the data to a certain end user, the rights of all of the various owners for a piece of data can be respected in that transaction. So if you think again about that sensor placed into a building, I might be the building owner and I put it in place, but the building is in a geography that has a governmental body that governs it. It's likely that the space is actually leased to a tenant who is paying for the right to use that space. And then the tenant has employees and customers who will interact with that space through the course of the day. You also have staff that come in and clean and, and, and interact with that space. A piece of data that measures that behavior ought to be owned and have policy applied to all of that ecosystem. So the tenant has rights to the data, the employees have rights to the data, the customers have rights to the data, and have the, at least the opportunity to express fine-grained desires, particularly about sharing. Because um, yeah. at the end of the day, what people really care about isn't necessarily what the building owner does, but people get up in arms when the building owner, quote unquote, sells their data to somebody else. And that yeah. is really an act of sharing, right? So that's what we're really targeted at, at addressing is you may not be able to control whether the device measures you or not, but you should be able to control whether the measurer has the right to sell that to a government, to a marketing agency, to a political party, or whatever your boogeyman of choice is. If you have visibility to that and control, I think that people will begin to relax about data and allow the business to, be, to, to continue. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, the whole, the whole notion of privacy or privacy, depending where where I am in the world, is absolutely something that is important to everybody. Recently, I had offered Zipperman on the podcast from a company Mm. called Anagog, who's a pioneer in the ATI space. And that was typically to understand what people are doing if they're not online. So really understanding through, for example, your phone, where you're going and where you're going next, do it in such a way that all of that data and all of that intelligence provides you with recommendations for the but doesn't reveal anything of that to the cloud. Yeah, that is also their differentiator. So it's interesting how privacy becomes a differentiating element of solutions uh, going forward. And yeah. Because, another... I think... Go? Sorry, no. Go ahead. because I think in the end, 
we recognize that data-driven businesses have an advantage. And different industries and different businesses have caught on to that idea at different speeds. What's clear, particularly in property management, is that we're only at the tip of what can be done with real data in these spaces. And I personally believe in the ability of companies to optimize because it's a societal good. It's better for the human race if companies make better use of resources while balancing the well-being of their employees, all their stakeholders, right? Their employees, their customers, their shareholders, et cetera. And data will help them balance that. Can data also help them be exploitive? Yes. And the goal is to, I think, expose the data in a way that provides visibility so that light can shine in to reduce the likelihood of exploitive behaviors, but not produce a barrier to not being able to collect and utilize data to balance that societal outcome. And so I think it's really about getting ahead of the problem, hopefully convincing all of these constituencies that they can see control and influence the ecosystem around their data so that they allow it to continue to be used for the societal good to optimize businesses and governments and, and, and their own experiences, right? In the case of things like recommendations, it makes the consumer's life demonstrably better to be able to do these things. How do we keep that train rolling without, and at the same time, sort of decrease the likelihood of malfeasance because everybody has a right also to not be transposed upon, right? So how do you balance that? I think that's the core idea, but the daily activity is, you know, I don't want to be confronted with all these details. I want that democratized. In other words, I want high quality data and I want to collect it at scale. Great. we got to solve all those problems. But like you said, you know, if you really boil down what our differentiator is, it's being smart about that. And most of the market doesn't yet know they need this technology. So that's the honest truth is very few people are shopping for a privacy solution today. But it's a bet we continue to make that at the end of the day, this will be a compelling differentiator. And as the market matures, they'll realize, hey, I'm really glad I chose a company that was thinking about this from the start and already has a, a compelling solution in place for me. Yeah, I mean, I agree that they are not looking for a privacy management solution, but they're looking to solve that problem about the real estate. That's right. And that tick in the box is giving you that edge that solves their problem in a way that exceeds their expectations or feel they feel most comfortable with. And as a consequence, there you go. Makes a difference for them. That's right. Cool. In that whole journey of creating the product, were there any surprising byproducts that came out of the process that you didn't expect coming? Yeah, I think the whole process has been a surprise as I really think about it. It's hard to pinpoint exactly one, but, you know, as I was saying, you know, discovering that IoT is compelling, not because the data is powerful, it is, but because people didn't really know how to think about it, created that surprising opportunity to come into that space and talk to people in an environment in which they're receptive because they weren't, you know, already, there wasn't competing against non-consumption, right? It's classic yeah. Yeah. technology adoption idea. We were competing against non-consumption in the space of IoT data management because organizations don't already collect it, or if they're collecting it, they're not comfortable with the way they're doing it. They don't understand it. It's not a dominant paradigm for them. True. So that was a surprise. And, you know, it, it probably could have been planned for, but we didn't. We discovered that as we went. And from that, you know, we went through this journey, which is painful, and we still go through it of, you know, you've got a, a broadly applicable technology and perspective, but you've got to keep focusing it, 
You got to keep focusing it, focusing it, focusing it. And then, yeah, there's a lot of problems we can solve with data management. There's a lot of problems we can solve with data management plus IoT. There's even yeah. a lot of problems we can solve with data management, IoT, and facilities. Yeah. But every time, every year, we redouble our efforts to provide focus, which really has been surprisingly valuable for our business, not opening to anything that can be done, but getting very specific about the things that we are doing and using focus as an engine of growth. To me, that continues to surprise me at how compelling that actually is. Okay, give an example of that. I mean, and the reason why I'm asking that, it is, number, it is in my book, I, I revealed the 10 traits of a remarkable software business. And guess what? Chapter one, they realize that they cannot please everybody. That's right. So, I mean, that is what you're saying here. And particularly right. the part where you're saying, it surprises me how, how well this works for the growth we are seeing. Because it, it's almost like a contradict. The moment you go broad, you think, okay, I can reach everybody in the market. That, that market potential is much bigger. But by focusing it to the to a granu- very granular stage, you get much more. That's right. I think you can have that intuition or you know an intellectual understanding, a book learning understanding about it. But until you go through the pain of truncating possibilities, which is I think hard for a lot of entrepreneurs because we yeah. I tend to have broad and large goals that we want to achieve and you know, but by narrowing the possibility set and actually seeing it be response to in the marketplace in a very positive way. That's a continual surprise. And, and I think at some point, logically, you reach the point where you want to broaden the fan a little bit again to add new market segments. But what we are really focusing on is continuing to focus on the constituency to build real domain knowledge, to build momentum in the marketplace. So we get to the yep. point where our customers begin to sell for us. That's a magical tipping point when you start to have them educate each other. And you can only do that by focus. Only can do that by focus. And then perhaps look for opportunities to move into you know, adjacent markets from there. Yeah. Well, I mean, you sort of sold the secret of the book. The remarkable effect is all about that at the end. Well, you know, there's a lot to it, right? It's easy, as I said, to say it in a simple sentence. It's a lot harder yeah. to do it. So no doubt that there is the next level of detail about how you actually go about that because I find it just... in really hard it's a really hard journey to actually execute what, i mean can you give an example of, of something that was really hard first of all to decide and then to do but you did it and it turned out to be yeah yeah so you know a concrete example is when we first got involved with iot we kind of saw two primary areas of opportunity one was facilities management as we've been discussing and the other was logistics And logistics is one of these like really compelling kind of use cases. And a lot of companies, the biggest in the world, really were early adopters of IoT and data science because they had massive logistic problems. Because talk about complexity beyond a human's ability to grasp mentally. When you think about logistics, it very quickly outstrips what you can do with a a brain and a piece of paper. And so... You know, you see companies like Walmart in the U.S. orchestrating their supply chain, as an example. You see international companies like DHL and FedEx who are tracking package and shipping at scale in a really compelling way. And we take for granted, you know, being able to order something on Amazon, at least in the developed world, and being able to see where your package is and when it's coming. And the accuracy is is amazing. That wasn't possible 20 years ago because people didn't know how to track packages or track trucks and manage these things. 
So early on, we had some logistic opportunities that we pursued and actually had some, some early success with. And logistic ROI is very clear. So we had a real hard time. We had some logistics customers. We had some facilities management customers. But they really weren't overlapping very much in terms of their core needs. And you think, well, you know, trucking or shipping, those are facilities too. Why aren't these the same thing? But they were different buyers with different mentalities. And we had to decide which of these paths do we want to go down. Logistics was, I think, more obvious, but it also had incumbent providers and facilities. We saw, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be harder because people are maybe less educated about what's possible, but there are less incumbents to fight against. And, you know, we made that call to let's double down on, let's leave logistics for later because we may come back to it very well, but let's double down on facilities and help people understand their spaces better. And I, and that was maybe four years ago. And every year it's been continuing to double down on that commitment to focus and really solve these people's problems. Yep. And I think that's paid off really well for us. It reminds me of a podcast I did very early on, maybe it's podcast number 10 or something. So mm. with a company called uh, Aerobotics and they provide drone information about citrus farms. Yeah. And you went for citrus rather than, for example, grapes or also exactly they went for sort of the 10% of the market rather than the 90% exactly for right. those reasons right. focus 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 solve that right. particular problem and that well the, the whole magic around it at the end which I also describe in my book is okay you, you really solve something that's extremely valuable high of importance and you do it in a way that you exceed expectations so that's it's right. not generic you go beyond yeah that's right that's, and uh, I think you know as you think about the economic argument too you got the economy of scale that you're always looking to achieve and it's always predicated on organizational learning. True. And we are humans too. And, you know, we might learn from random, broad problem solving, but it's hard to keep it all in your mind. That learning tends to diffuse if you don't relearn and reinforce and double. And particularly as your organization grows, it's hard to push that organization learning through, particularly as you begin to hire new people, right? Culturally, you have that challenge, but knowledge, you have a massive challenge there. And the more focused you are, the more likely you are to be able to push that knowledge to the next level of people by repeating it, right? You end up with these stories, right, that you tell each other. And the more consistency of those stories, the more likely that knowledge will catch on. And that's where the economy of scale is coming from. It's, It's by learning somebody's problem really well and repeating the story again and again. And then from there, I think once that's inculcated, maybe you can begin to expand out to tell new stories But for me, that's been like one of the interesting things about the people aspect of growing a company is how do you share that knowledge so that the domain learning is durable and valuable and achieves that economy of scale. And I think, you know, we're beginning to see the value of that in our company. Yeah, the alignment, which is also a a magical thing to that momentum that you were talking about earlier on. That's absolutely right. (laughs) Interesting. So let me see in, in respect of time. What have you been most proud of seeing so far? I mean, you're talking about stories. What is a story that you keep telling? Well, you know, maybe it's a new story that is more about the current moment. We, I think, are recording this in the middle of the, what I hope is the middle and, and not the only the beginning of the COVID quarantine period. But, you know, we very quickly pivoted what we were working on in terms of space management to add contact tracing 
in a novel way. We call it universal contact tracing because it doesn't require cell phone use, which turns out to be really compelling, both from a privacy perspective, but increasingly for populations that don't have dependable smartphone availability, either because they're precluded from it in the case of certain manufacturing spaces, or they're a population that just doesn't have access to that in manufacturing and mining and you know, some of these more broad applicable solutions. So the universal contact tracing is something that we brought into the space using common sensors and our existing technologies. And it's been really gratifying actually seeing how those technologies can be brought to bear to help people. Because at the end of the day, it really is about human well-being and about company effectiveness. Because if you don't have the company being effective then it becomes an economic hardship on the people. But if you do that at the expense of health, then it becomes obviously a well-being detriment to the people. Yeah. And it's the balance between those two things that we're beginning to help companies around the world face using a combination of our technologies, right? Contact tracing plus cleaning plus occupancy is really pointing to a way of helping people balance that need to get back to work, but not being but having eyes open about the well-being aspects of, of vanquishing a, a quarantine challenge. So that has been a story that is new for us, but it really piggybacks off of what our mission has been at least for the last several years. And it's been really gratifying to see how the market has responded, how our company has responded, and given us a mission um, that is so very clearly about human well-being that it's an, it makes it easier to get up early yeah. in the morning for that, that call from Asia or, or, or what have you. So that's been great. Nice. I like the story. So I've been referencing my book a couple of times now, I realize. But what, I always, what I'm always interested in when I speak to founders like you about the things that you believe are, are core traits to create a company that people and your customers talk about. You were also talking about advocates yes. start to sell for you. So what do you believe is one or two of those traits that are crucial to get to that stage? Yeah. So I think as a startup, you're being asked to provide innovation. And that's important, but probably has been talked a lot about. And it's probably fairly obvious, at least in the tech entrepreneurship space. What I think is less obvious is the need to meet the customer where they are, to speak uh -huh. their language, to understand their needs, and be able to make the innovation adoptable by respecting who they are and where they, where they are at any given point in time. And that is, I think, a real deep skill about listening, about being an adopt your mode of communication. And it's about empathy, or ultimately. It's about, I really want to solve your problem. I'm not trying to shove my technology down your throat, because if it doesn't solve your problem and I can't make it acceptable to you by learning how to speak to you about its benefits in your terms, then there's just a bad, a bad match there. And the best technologies I see out there don't always find that voice that the customers can hear. And I think IoT has been stuck in that, that spot sure. for a long while with people obsessed about device characteristics and network quality and, you know, radio frequency. And to be sure there's a lot of important details that go into the, the plastic cover, right? There's a lot of depth, but for the most part, the customers don't want to talk about that information. It's not relevant yeah. to them. It doesn't make sense to them. And increasingly, you know, I think technology companies sound shrill 
to their potential customer base because we can't keep shouting about these technical differentiators that the customers, they don't appreciate. They've got day jobs. They're experts in their own right. They're managing businesses and they're, and they can be made to feel stupid if you're talking to them incorrectly. And that's a turnoff. And at very worst, they just don't hear you. They say, oh, great. Nice to hear from you. Uh, it was a good meeting. And they go about their day job because you failed to find the way to make it relevant to them. So yeah. I think that's a, that's a very important trait is listening to customers, but being able to talk to them in their own voice. I think if you can't do that, you'll never find at least the mainstream part of the market that's necessary for true growth. I can only agree with that. It's something that everybody can learn, but you have to watch yourself. That's right. It's very easy to lapse, particularly as technologists to fall in love with their technology yeah. baby because you have to be in control of the, of the details. You just have to realize that your customers, they want to trust that you know the details. They don't want to know the details themselves because they have to know the details so that their customers can trust them. Exactly. Right? Yeah, true. Yeah, completely true. So, yeah, I mean, where you are right now, fascinating place already, but where do you want to be next in the next 12 to 24 months? What are, yeah, what are so the main priority on your agenda? I think the COVID impact on facilities is hard to underestimate because of all of these forces that are now at work in the economy. And I think they were forces that were already at work, but have been accelerated. And so it prevents, it, it presents a real challenge to people because, you know, we use the word unprecedented probably too much. It's kind of a trope at this point. But what that means to me is that the market lacks experience that they can count on to know the way forward. Yeah. And that is a detriment because it creates chaos and uncertainty and fear, which can be an impediment to action. I think we need action, but we need thoughtful action. If we can't count on experience because it's unprecedented, then I think we must turn to data. And that creates a real opportunity for those who have control of data and can make the argument in the terms of the customers that data is the way to supplement experience, to allow for experimentation, positive action, and moving into the future. So for us in the next 12 to 24 months, we really see increasing our ability to combine the kinds of insight and data collection that we have already brought to market in ways that will help people make decisions in a concrete way in a chaotic world about how to move forward, what to do with your current work scheduling, what to do with your cleaning, how to expand, contract, or change the way you think about space acquisition. And we're seeing people increasingly deciding, you know, centralization and scale may be the wrong way to think about space. How do I chop up big buildings into smaller regional areas, which I think is a great way to also improve quality of life by eliminating the commutes from people's lives and, and allowing them to work increasingly where they prefer to live near their families, near areas that might be more conducive to health than center of cities. So there's a lot of value there. But it's the very same effect that I mentioned earlier of if I chop up my building, it gets even harder for me to see what's going on. I can't manage by walking around. So the next 12 and 24 months is to increase that ability to provide that insight so that people can confidently move into that new world and give facility managers some positive capability to act. And at the end of the day, I really do think that will lead to a more efficient use of space, a better use of resources, and balance that human well-being 
as we all try to get back to work and, and keep the engine of the economy turning. Well said. Nice words to conclude this call. I've been inspired by, by what you've been saying and what you've been sharing. The wisdom from the whole journey truly came out. So where can people go to find out more about MicroShare? And how can people best connect with you to say hi? Yeah, the best way, I think, to find out about MicroShare is just come to our website, which is www.microshare.io. And we have been very visible. You can just Google us, I'm sure, and find uh, relevant links. And for me, I'm very active on Twitter. So you can contact me either at my sort of professional handle, which is microshare underscore CTO, or at my personal handle, which is tpanagos, T-P-A-N-A-G-O-S. That's simple. Thanks for this, Timothy. And yeah, well, thanks for making the time today and, and sharing what you shared. Like I said, I've picked up a couple of good nuggets. I'm glad you, are, you, were, you were highlighting a number of things that made you successful that are key traits in the book that I've just written. So yeah, good luck with the business in the coming period. Tom, thanks so much for the opportunity. It's gratifying to find some resonance there. And you know, hopefully it, it also is mirrored in the experience of some entrepreneurs or potential entrepreneurs who maybe will realize that you don't have to be the smartest guy in the world to succeed. There are some key traits, but you know, failure is part of the equation, right? True. Finding your way through is important and being prepared for that. You know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world and I will admit that it's been a rocky journey and maybe still rocky ahead, but I think that's part of the part of the entrepreneurial package is living through adversity. Well said. Thanks. Thank you. And this ends my conversation with Tim. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Tim Panagos, co-founder and chief technology officer at Microshare. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. 
Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.